1: what's going on everyone welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamota and danny abeljabar sorry about that danny guys i just screwed up i we started recording for about five ten minutes and i had my fan on my room fan And, uh, we got to restart this.
0: (laughs) You're really pressing yourself, man. And normally, normally I'm chilling as per usual, but today I've got a splitting headache. So I'm trying to get through this recording today and we've got to start over.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Danny, Danny, Danny texted me this morning or this afternoon saying, man, I'm really not feeling well. I don't know if I can do this show today. And I'm like, today is the only show that I can do it Day, day. I can do it this week. And uh, so Danny is being a trooper, and he's uh, he's uh, gonna currently try hiding
0: to in the dark right now. Usually, put it, like yeah, a-
1: hiding in the dark. He's putting his head down and trying to get through this show. And <laughs> I say everything's gonna run smoothly. And then first things first, I leave my fan on, and we have to erase the first five minutes. But we did we did have an interesting conversation about weed dispensaries. But I guess we'll have to save that for another day. Yeah. Maybe we should, maybe we should just get directly into the topic. <laughs>
0: sure. Let's
1: do it. All right. So, um, today we're going to be talking about the cold war. Um, I don't know what, a, what a transition it's, I don't know the best way to segue into this or, or how to lead into this, but I personally have been wanting to talk about the cold war for a while. Um, I think there's a lot of parallels between the cold war and now and, um, And this has been one of my main interests as of late, as far as what I've been reading about and what I've been looking into. So um, today's episode will be the origins of the Cold War. Does that sound good, Danny? Yep, I'm down. And I want to just kind of preface this. So before World War II, so before the federal government started deducting your income tax from your paycheck... The United States did not have a permanent arms industry. After every major war, the U.S. would eventually demobilize. Right. Uh, so if you look at a chart of U.S. military expenditures as a share of GDP, you'll see spending spikes during the years of 1861 to 1865, so the Civil War, and 1917 and 19 to, to 1919, World War One. So you got to look at these. You can find these charts up spending throughout the entire country's history. Um, but they're, they're really interesting to see those spikes during war years. And But then they all, you know, the the, the uh, X-axis line drops all the way down. And you see the other great powers of the world, like Germany, Russia, France, uh, UK, um, you know, out outspending the United States in, in military spending. Um, for example, the Civil War, the U.S. went from over a million soldiers to 200,000 soldiers by October 20th, um, 1865. And the same thing during World War I.
0: Why? Because they all
1: died? (laughs) No. Well, so the U.S. Army went somewhere around 140,000 soldiers right before the war to over 4 million in a year. However, by the 1930s, that number drops back down to around 140,000 again. So... A little it bit over one hundred forty thousand. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were conscripting soldiers, and there was a lot of volunteers. But I think maximum there was two million who were in Europe, and then there was two million back at home uh, altogether. There was four million. It was a four million man army during World War One. Well, I mean, after the war, a lot of these people are, you know, they 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 uh, are discharged, and by the nineteen thirties, that number drops all the way down. So one of the books I've been reading, and it's one of my favorite books, it's called The War State. And it's by um, a guy named uh, Mike Swanson, who's a, a former hedge fund owner, who also writes just really good history books. And and he kind of specializes on the Cold War and, and uh, you know, defense in a national security state. Um, I would highly recommend it. And I'm going to be pulling multiple quotes from his book for this podcast. But he writes... In 1934, the military budget for the War Department was only $243 million, and the whole army owned only 80 semi-automatic rifles, with most soldiers using out-of-date 1903 bolt action Springfield rifles. Supplies were so low that in 1935, the Army Chief of Staff, General Douglas MacArthur, set a hopeful goal of stockpiling enough ordnance for a 30-day supply of ammunition. In 1940, the military had only 80 tanks and 49 bombers.
0: That's not—I mean, I, I feel like I know like five guys who have that many semi-automatic semi-auto- rifles between them. So that's a that's a very paltry sum of of munitions there.
1: I know you go to any county in Texas; you know they have more <laughs> semi-automatic <laughs> rifles than that. Seriously, um, but he goes into so he, he then goes into U.S. military spending by the end of World War II. So by the end of the war, the United States produced over eighty-eight thousand tanks and self-propelled guns, two hundred and fifty-seven thousand artillery pieces, two million machine guns, and ninety-seven thousand bombers, uh, ninety-nine thousand fighter aircraft, twenty-two aircraft carriers, eighty-eight—not no, eighty-eight—battleships, and over four hundred destroyers and cruisers
0: that sounds like the america we know
1: (laughs) yeah Yeah. that's the america we know um so in total the u.s spends over 840 billion dollars during world war ii adjusted for inflation that's over 16 trillion trillion dollars in today's money yikes where does that money go i wonder politically connected corporations of course so there is an old saying if you're going to make a capitalist country go to war business needs to be able to profit off of it so in order to appease big business fdr creates the war production board the war production board was responsible for directing uh, war procurement and production and the board was mainly composed of corporate executives from across the country therefore war contracts to companies that the board members already had relationships with so there was no competitive bidding
0: uh, i th- i think i can see where this is going
1: so this relationship between big business and, and government is um is the genesis or or even the origin story of what we call the the military industrial complex or at the very least of what eisenhower warned us about the, the MIC, the <laughs> MIC. This is kind of the origin story of that, of that, of that uh, collusion between the state and big business, um, colluding together to create this massive war state. Yeah, um, Christian Sorensen told us all about that last yes. year when he was on. Um, but you see, see, the defense it doesn't operate under the rules of. Adam Smith capitalism it operates under the rules of corporate socialism. The federal government provides the the working capital, and you know they're given no bid and cost plus free contracts that guarantee a profit no matter what happens. And as you could predict, the people making a fortune during the war want' to continue making money. Um, speaking of money, <laughs> speaking of making money, um, want to tell you about a video game that Danny and I have been playing conflicts of nations is a free online pvp strategy game it's a game where you take command of a modern battlefield and lead a country through war modern war engage in battles against real players real players like danny hey danny have you taken over the rest of the middle east yet
0: actually that's an interesting story so i did i took over a bunch of land uh, got the entire arabian peninsula pushed into egypt was going south. I took over most of Ethiopia. I actually turned around and went eastwards and started, you know, taking over places like uh, Georgia and, and Turkey and all this other stuff. And then, and I'm not even kidding you, the Mongols. Oh, so I got I got wiped by the Mongols, like completely wiped in in the first game. I was very upset about it because I was playing this game nonstop uh, for several days. And uh, all that hard work went to shit. Uh, but now I learned how to team up with other people uh, in coalitions. Um, so if you're a fan of the show, uh, play the game and maybe uh, we can we can join up uh, and take over the world together.
1: Well, the most important thing is, did you have fun playing Conflicts of Nations? Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm well, still playing it. that's the most important today. thing. You can fight up to 128 other players in real time in games that take w- takes weeks to complete Over 100 beautifully modeled modern weapons systems such as tanks, jets, nuclear submarines, nuclear ballistic submarines, combat combat attack helicopters, stealth strike fighters, airborne infantry units, and many more. Terrifying weapons of mass destruction with lasting consequences on the population. You know, the kind of stuff that we talk about on our show. Um, So declare war on your neighbors. There's nothing wrong with declaring or simulating war. Um, And you can play this game. On your PC or your mobile, and uh, you can download Conflicts of Nations World War Three on the App Store or the Play Store, and you can play the web game at ww3.tv. Again, that is ww3.tv. All right, let's get back to the show. So, um, all right, let's pull this back. There's a book called um, Lost Alliance by. A histor- by an historian named uh, Frank uh, Costig Costigliola that uh, argues that the reason why the Cold War happened was because the Big Three alliance between FDR Stalin and Churchill was split up. So FDR dies in office, and Churchill loses his election to the Labour Party in 1945. Obviously, th- there's a lot more to it in his book, but you know he kind of writes more about how. The personalities between the three were kind of keeping things together. And then when those personalities uh, were disrupted or, you know, when these guys weren't dealing with each other anymore, everything went to shit. And that's how the Cold War happened. He writes it, obviously, with a lot more nuance. And I'm just kind of paraphrasing him. But what I agree with, and I think what everyone's kind of forced to agree with, is that FDR and Stalin were partners during the war. And I don't think either one of them planned on a 40-year Cold War.
0: That's that's crazy, actually. I got to pick up that book because I had no idea that FDR was buddies with Stalin. Uh, that's kind of hard to believe, but I guess. I mean, something tells me, though, that Stalin must have had like some kind of ulterior motives. You know, I'm going to whip out those time crystals to figure it out.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't say they're buddies. I'm just saying that they were collaborators. They were working together. They were partners in the biggest war in human history. So mm. there was just some level of cooperation and apparently you know they're two of the most powerful people on the planet. So I mean they were able to work with each other to fight to fight in World War II. As far as like I don't know how hard, how far but I can tell you that he was accused of being too too soft on Stalin. Like people mm. would when people would criticize him he'd be like, "Hey man, this guy's a monster." It is true that he is that, that Stalin is a monster by the way. So that was a criticism. Um, but just to go to pull this back, the Soviet Union suffered more than any other country during the war. The Eastern Front of World War II was the largest and most brutal war fought in human history. Right. And the Soviets, they lose tens of millions of people. Um, and er I mean, early in the war, the Germans got within just a few miles of Moscow. So Stalin was gladly willing to cooperate with the allies in order to uh protect the soviet state from another invasion after the war i mean but how do you
0: you said so yourself stalin's kind of a monster like how, how can you trust stalin though i mean i can see why he would want the help but why would we why would we cooperate with him
1: well i think you just got to look at history and, and see what his interests are um I mean, how many times has Russia been invaded throughout history? Hmm. And not just Napoleon and not just Hitler. And I guess you can throw in Genghis Khan from the east and, you know, all the barbarian or the Mongols, man, Mongol whores Uh, or not. It wasn't Genghis Khan who did it. It was. uh, Well. Let's not go too far out of this. Um, I know you have a headache. Um, but <laughs> something something that is, not, is kind of forgotten in history that no one really talks about, or you, you know, you're not going to learn in your social studies class. The Allies try to strangle the Bolsheviks in the cradle during World War One. After Russia made a peace deal with Germany, the Allies invade Russian territory in order to restore a second front against Germany. But what happens is that they end up staying and financing the White movement. You know. The, the white movement was the was the anti communist movement in the during the Russian Civil War and um, the, the the Russian Civil War it was the, the bloodiest civil war in human history. Now, we've talked about it never we've never done a full episode on the Russian Civil War, but we've actually. had some conversation. We probably should, but it is one of the most brutal civil wars in a nation um, fought in human history. Um, around ten million people die. Um, like this, I think it actually. I, this is where I got to the statistics. The Guinness Book of World Records has it as the bloodiest civil war in human history. Uh, I think 1.5 million uh, soldiers died, and uh, around eight million civilians died of, you know, not just fighting and you know starvation, famine, and, and, and yeah. disease mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, yeah, but so. Yeah, Stalin was definitely an evil guy, but I don't think he was crazy. Like I don't think he wanted another war after World War II. Like imagine mm-hmm. if the Soviet Union had to fight another war against all of Western Europe and the United States.
0: Well, I mean, based on what you're saying, I feel like he would have lost. That they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have been in in a spot to risk more lives in the war and more money and. And I probably also would have given his like domestic opponents an opening to work with, you know, uh, foreign powers to overthrow Stalin himself from the inside out. Probably wouldn't have been a good deal for him.
1: Well, it just would have been another decade of war of of just bloody, terrible war. Right. Um, I think there was some type of desire for for peace. And something that's interesting is that, um, you know, we've talked about the common turn. And how, you know, the Comintern trained a lot of the young Chinese communists, like Mao, not just Chinese communists, but, you know, the Chinese, they trained um, political parties all over the world, not even just communists. Like they would just train people, kind of throw shit in the wall and hope they'd end up being Mm communists. Like Chiang Kai-shek from China and Mao were both trained uh, by the by the Comintern. Um, And and Chiang Kai-shek is probably the most anti-communist person of all time as far as, like, who killed the most commies ever is probably Chiang Kai-shek. Well, he dissolves the Comintern, Communist International. He dissolves that in 1943. Um, So he disbands the mission to spread communism worldwide his geopolitical goal was to surround the Soviet Union with buffer states to ultimately protect Russia from another invasion from the West. Mm -hmm. So that's what he did. Once the tides of the war in the Eastern Front started to change and uh, the Soviets took the offensive, he occupied and installed puppet satellite governments in all the countries between Moscow and Berlin you know, creating uh, secret police systems like the Stasi and and these nations to make sure that they remained uh, subservient to them. Like, Mm -hmm. as we all know, Germany splits between the Soviets from from East, um, you know, the Soviet side, the the Eastern Soviets, the the West uh, liberal democracy, Berlin becomes an international city divided up into zones controlled by the US, England, France, and the Soviet Union. But very
0: fascinating, very fascinating, um, like development of, of not just, uh, political and, and military, uh, stuff, but also just culture and you know, that the, the city was very densely populated and, and, you know, between East and West broadly, the differences in the lifestyle was crazy. You can even go to some museums of like old, like East German, uh, you know, countries, uh, East German, um, uh, Berlin and, and just see the, the epic difference. I think there is like an old satellite photo, um, that came out not too long, I feel like within, within the last 10 or 15 years that showed that even till today, the light bulbs in Berlin are different <laughs> where you can actually still see the divide between East and West because of how, how differently they set up everything right down to the infrastructure, the culture, and, and of course the, the political, um, differences. I, I'd love to Talk more about that in a different episode, but it's very, very fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, man, I've been to Berlin, and it is just a very, very. um I, I felt I was kind of in a somber mood when I was walking around in Berlin. I don't know. I know you lived there for a little bit.
0: Yeah, you lived in I, Berlin, I right? Yeah, I, I lived. No, in I, Berlin. I, I.
1: I love the city, of Berlin, but it's definitely there's definitely kind of a somber atmosphere.
0: For sure. I mean, if you think too hard about what happened there, then yeah, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna feel that way. And especially if you go there as a tourist and you do the touristy things, then yeah, you're, it, it feels a little bit somber, but I used to live on the East side and go to school on the West. So I would cross checkpoint Charlie like daily a couple times a day, actually. Um, and it was cool. Like it was cool to, to, to learn all about the, the history and, and, you know, probably one of my, my, um, favorite movies is a a movie called goodbye Lenin uh, comedy movie about um, a a guy and his, his mom, she goes into a coma and she's like one of those um, like communist, like uh, figureheads, like she was pretty high up in the communist party in East Germany. And then she ends up in a coma uh, and the Berlin wall falls. And then when she wakes up, it's no longer like, um, you know, Soviet, uh, Germany, Soviet Russia in West Berlin, East Berlin, excuse me. And the doctor tells him like, oh, you can't get her excited. Otherwise she could die right? So he goes through these wild lengths, like he's a filmmaker and he goes through these wild lengths of like filming like fake news stories and playing them for her and like going, you know, like dumpster diving to find like old communist, uh, like East German furniture and like old, it's like replacing uh, new pickles with old pickle labels from the uh, East Germany. It's just absolutely hilarious, but it really highlights like, you know, how much different the two sides of of this one city were even, you know, not, not even too long ago. It was just nuts.
1: Yeah, man, it's crazy. It's, uh, it, I even got that vibe like going to the Berlin wall and from the east to the west and be like, Oh man, this is how it's kind of Western side is a lot nicer. Yeah, <laughs> like, it really it still is. Hasn't caught up, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, I would, I don't want to get too off tangent, but, um, I was in, um, Czechoslovakia I'm Czechoslovakia who am I Dick Cheney um, I was in um, Prague and Czechia um, now and I got lost and mm-hmm. in, in uh, Prague for a good uh, I don't know like for hours I got lost I was drunk <laughs> and I walked and I just got like my a movie phone died and I would walk <laughs> and I just walked out of like the old the old uh, Prague historical city with all the like old castles and stuff like that mm-hmm. where all the tourists are and I ended up like in some old like commie like I looked I was like oh my god where the am I I walked into the the old <laughs> communist block it was uh <laughs> it was creepy finally I found a guy who I think was selling drugs who told me where to go that's so, cool he's like oh I'll tell you where to go I was like I'm lost don't harvest my organs I'm american <laughs> Um, all right, too off getting too off tangent, but all right, back to, um, you know, the, back to the cold war. Um, so I have a quote up here. It's from, um, historian, um, D, D. F Fleming. It's from the book, the cold war and its origins it was written back in, in 1961. So this is an older book and, um, I'll just give you fair warning. D.F. Fleming had been accused a lot of being a communist sympathizer. So I just want to let you know where the source is coming from. But nevertheless, it's a good read. And I think he does bring up some interesting points. It must be so quoting D.F. Fleming. It must be apparent to all that Russian security cannot be assured if Eastern Europe is in the hands of unfriendly powers in both world wars, world wars, as well as in the Polish invasion of 1920. Eastern Europe had been the invasion route into Russia. Using bases in this area, hostile powers have been able to invade and lay waste vast stretches of the Soviet Union. Thus, the very existence of the Soviet Union depends upon making certain that the government of Eastern Europe are friendly towards her. When one realizes that the West also desires to dominate and control this area and that it precipitates the Second World War in order to maintain its primacy in Eastern Europe, the basis for the Cold War becomes apparent. Yet, Eastern Europe, so vital to the Soviet Union, is in no way essential to the West. For the Russians, the control of the area is a matter of life and death. For the West, it is but a luxury. And I don't think he was a communist. People just I any mean, you know that was a day and age where everyone was being accused of a communist being a yeah. comp- communist sympathizer. Um, yeah.
0: I mean, what what do we think th- that this means? You know, uh, that that it's a luxury for the west i mean like how 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 is that the case i mean for for nazi germany at least it was kind of a life and death situation to to have that you know poland and uh silesia and 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 the the areas to the east of them uh because they needed it for their you know growing population uh or at least that's that was the intended result there uh i mean the area's decently stacked with resources and and if for nothing else, it's a good buffer against Russia uh, or the Soviet Union at the time. So, like, uh, I wonder how 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 is this like our current situation, and how is it a luxury still for the West? Well, the
1: luxury it's a luxury for for Britain and a luxury for the United States. The United mm. States has no interest. I mean, outside of like NATO, what interest does the U.S. have in in Eastern Europe? I see. Nine. So when. There's so when zero, this guy says the West, he, he, means like
0: the he means like he means the U.S. <laughs> and
1: he mean he means the United States and Britain. The other mm-hmm. partners in the war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I okay. don't think he even means France in the context. Yeah, I guess you can include France in it, but he he means the remaining allies. Um, and then you know Germany at this was kind of. Was I mean, obviously it's up, important right. to Germany because that is also a buffer. Germany kind of has the same problems with its borders and you can easily kind of cross those borders and invade and they want buffer States. And that's why Poland kind of, you know, there's no chance of a pole there. Well, there was no chance of a Poland ever surviving because there's just two aggressive States surrounding it who both want that as their buffer for the other. Right. Um, but it kind of sounds, it, it reminds me of the current situation right now in Eastern Europe with, with Vladimir Putin, because I think that, The Soviet Union's interests are very similar to what modern-day Russia's interests are right now. Like you know, having their kind of cushion there, but you know, Russia doesn't really have that cushion anymore because NATO has pretty much gone right up to their doorstep. So Mm -hmm. you can see why Putin acts the way he does when it comes to Ukraine. um, Right. When it comes to having influence in Ukraine, um, influence in, in states like Belarus. Like, so, do you I mean, see, he's that not similar? like outright
0: annexing those countries, but he definitely wants to exercise as much political influence over them as possible, right?
1: Well, he annexed Crimea, but Crimea is kind of a That's weird a situation. situation. It's a unique yeah. situation as in, it was Russian and before Khrushchev transferred it from um, Russia to Ukraine, but it was well, like a russian speaking area it's basically russia all, all but,
0: borders are all borders are um, fictions anyway so
1: i mean yeah. and and also it it also it had to do with the um with the navy base in Sevastopol there right um the US, the russia was not giving up the Sevastopol navy base under its dead body they don't have they don't have they're not near Warm water. They're in mm-hmm. a cold place. That was their only warm water port. So, right, it would have. Uh, it was just kind of a a necessary thing for them to do, uh, yeah, as makes far sense. as geopolitically. Um, but so, um FDR. I think FDR also wanted a peaceful post-war. Well, y- yeah. Thought, you
0: were saying that they were like bros with Stalin, right? <laughs> Like, I,
1: I, I didn't say bros. I said they were partners. They okay. were collaborators. <laughs> I work with this person. Doesn't mean that you hang out at the bar afterwards.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: There's a difference between your your work friends and friends who work together. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. He's a work friend. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe their personal relationship goes deeper than I than I know. Um, but I think that he did want to. I think FDR did want a peaceful post-war order. Um, FDR was an internationalist or globalist, <laughs> what you would call a globalist. He okay. created both the, the UN and the Bretton Woods system. So, you know, before the Great, Depe- the Great Depression, the world's currencies had been pegged to the price of gold. Now, you know, Roosevelt pegged the dollar to the price of gold and, and turned it into the reserve currency of central banks and nations across the, the, the globe. So it was a position that helped um, us borrow money from other countries after the war and then finance the deficits of today. It's funny because people think that FDR stood up to Wall Street. In reality, he was a Wall Street guy. You know, he was financed by um, the Rockefellers. Like, he was financed by Standard Oil, Royal Dutch Shell, um, Wall Street banks, um, you know, corporate conglomerates headquartered in New York. They were billion known as the Eastern Establishment. <laughs> they were they were the Eastern establishment. Yeah. Um, you know, he you gotta look at listen to uh Richard Nixon tapes talking about the Eastern establishment. They're very funny. It's like, I'm not even gonna repeat them. Um he says crude things about them. But um Stalin didn't give a crap about this shit. He didn't give a crap about liberal internationalism. And like having access to Russian resources and things like that. And, you know, global capitalism. Like that's Mm -hmm. what Roosevelt was interested in. Like, you know, free global trade and being able, you know, American companies being able to compete with like other like third world countries on the global markets with superior technology and having control of currencies and stuff like that. That's what FDR's plan was. And he wanted to invite the Soviet Union into that system if he Mm -hmm. could. And then. Stalin was just like I don't give a f- crap about that. I just want, I just my, want buffer my buffer states. states. <laughs> I want my sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. Like, what can we do to do? What can we get? So, um, so um, I mean, eventually FDR, FDR
0: dies, right? So this doesn't like his his globalist intentions kind of end with him, don't I?
1: Well, I mean, kind of. I mean, it's not like Truman didn't have the same type of intentions at at first, or pretty much the same, but I guess in a different they didn't include um stalin as much mm. so so, at, so what happened at, at the yalta conference at the yalta conference right before fdr died both fdr and churchill they make a bunch of concessions to each other mm. to to russia so um one of the big ones is stalin conceded greece to britain and russia was given control of most of the balkans stalin also agrees to enter the war with Japan three months after the defeat of Germany. In return, the Allies agreed to recognize the provisional governments he installed in Poland if he held elections. So, I got another book from a quote from Mike Swanson's book, uh, The War State A memo of the meeting's results circulated by Soviet Foreign Affairs Office to Russian diplomats reported that there was a palpable search for compromise on disputed issues. We assessed the conference as a high positive fact, particularly on Polish and Yugoslavia issues and on the issues of reparations. So they were making progress then. Yeah, they were. Well, well, in the Soviet eyes, they were... um, getting concessions from the allies that they wanted so one of the big things was um, w- one of the big arguments was Poland um another big um, consent you know they were trying to f- figure out the Balkans because the British had a lot of interest in in Greece um so those were kind of the things that they were they were fighting about and the United States had always been neutral in that part of the world like what the hell what the hell' interest does the U.S have in the Mediterranean like there, there was none before World War II the United States the only interest they ever had in the Mediterranean Sea goes back to like the 17 the, the early 1800s when Thomas Jefferson was president and he sent the Marine Corps to go fight the you know the pirates that were robbing uh, commerce ships like mm-hmm. that is like the only interest that we like the United States had in the Mediterranean Sea. know prior to these world wars like who 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 cares right that's like my mentality now but you know but it we're kind of forced to talk about it like who cares so far away um but um i'm gonna go on because there's more to this quote well so fdr dies um truman becomes president and A month later, the head of the Soviet intelligence station in New York warned that economic circles that had no influence over Roosevelt's foreign policy were now undertaking an organized effort to bring about a change in the policy of the United States towards the USSR. These reactionaries, he continued, are setting particular hopes on the possibility of getting direction of the United States foreign policy policy wholly in their hands, partly because Truman is notoriously untried and ill-informed, On these matters so he's green he's new something interesting about Harry Truman that kind of makes him a little bit of an outcast when it comes to presidents he is the only president never to go to college really yeah I didn't know that I did not know that either until like a couple days ago
0: well goes to show you you don't need a college education Education.
1: You didn't need a college education in the 1940s. That's true. No, I, I think that's kind of circulated. I, I, I think now you don't need a college education again. <laughs> People are yeah. realizing that they're not that valuable. Well, they're valuable only for the piece of paper to say, hey, I went to college. I was able to not get expelled from something for four years. I was able to figure out how to accomplish passing. Hire you know, me. a collective of courses <laughs> to get a diploma right and i did it i did it unenthusiastically like that, that was and, my, and also I'm i put myself into my great amount my of experience, debt so please my hire me. experience in college is, is my experience in college <laughs> i unenthusiastically figured out ways to pass courses to get a diploma um
0: ends justify the means man
1: <laughs> the ends justify the means um all right so Something to take note with the Truman, though, is that he's FDR's third vice president. Third? And he's his third vice president. Hmm. So he'd only been VP for a little more than full three full months before FDR dies. And FDR was notoriously known for keeping his VPs out of the loop. For example, Truman had no idea... That the U.S. was developing an atomic bomb. He didn't know that we were that there was a Manhattan Project until after he became president. Hmm. So he was kept that much out of the loop. He's like Kamala Harris at this well, point. Well, no, I'd, I'd
0: actually reverse that. I bet she knows more than Joe Biden does. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I guess, I guess uh, that's a fair point. Yeah, I think he actually knows more than he puts off too. No, I think no, he's totally. just. I'm just. Just I think he's fun at him. I think he's just um a I think he just comes off so bad on camera, but he's there's a little bit more um in his mind than what people think. I used to think that yeah, if you look at the other episodes, I used to say that he had Alzheimer's that he Alzheimer's had dementia, reason. but I don't think he does. Uh but that's let's not get too much into um domestic politics. Domestic yeah. politics. We're talking about the cold war here. Some say we live in a cold war now. A cold With war China. With China, China, or Cold War between the right and left, the culture war. Um, okay, so the the so Truman he's inexperienced. He turns to a guy named James Burns for consultation on foreign policy. Mm-hmm. James Burns was the head of the Office of War Mobilization, and they were really good friends from their time in the Senate together. Um, so. The, the Office of War Mobilization was a very high-level position. It was one of the highest positions in the national security state.
0: That so certainly sounds like it. Um, so um, my guess is that you're about to tell me how, uh, how he impacted Truman's policy. So it, is
1: it good or bad? Well, I mean, that's subjective. Okay. Um, so in three weeks into his presidency— Hitler kills himself Not and bad. He, he kills himself on April 30th and Germany surrenders on May 7th, the VE day, May, May 7th, uh, 1945. Mm-hmm. Harry Hopkins, FDR's closest policy advisor. He was telling Truman that he could negotiate with Stalin and he, You know, Stalin's only problem was that he was a hardcore Russian nationalist and, you know, he just had to kind of had to deal with him. Um, Harry Hopkins is another guy that historians kind of be like, oh, Harry Hopkins was way too close with Stalin and he enabled him and stuff like that, Uh, which may be true. You know, I'm not an expert. I'm just kind of repeating things that I've read. Um, However, uh, Burns convinced Truman to delay the post-war meetings until they successfully tested the atomic bomb. So basically, what he tells them is that the bomb would put them in a position to dictate um, our own terms at the end of the war. Hmm. So which he said, "Hey true. man," which is kind of. which is true mm-hmm. from the Machiavellian standpoint. That that's mm-hmm. definitely the right advice. Hey, we have this like bomb. This, this bomb that just changes warfare forever. Like this is a historic moment. We're testing this thing. It's going to be, if this thing works, the United States is the most powerful and scary nation ever. And no one will ever want to fuck with us. And we'll, we'll be able to do whatever we want across the world. So why would we go to our post-war meetings where we're going to be talking about like influencing concessions that we want to make, and the new world order, and not have this card. Like, what are you crazy? Of course, we need to wait till we, this thing works. If the thing, this thing works, we're the world superpower number one. Like, we are the number one power. No questions asked. We can dictate anything. That's right. Um, so, I mean, that was probably the right advice if you're, you know, the nation if you're you're, uh, arguing for the interest of the of the government as a side note on that um
0: i'm not super familiar with how it is that other countries ended up getting specifically the soviet union but how other countries ended up getting the you know the bomb themselves like did they like just steal our ideas or like did they espionage us and that's how they were able to figure out how to do it or was it enough to just see that we had an atomic bomb for them and be like oh I bet we can make one of those, too. I'm really curious about that. We might well, I'm not, that I'm not later.
1: sure when, like, the proliferation agreements came to be. Um, there are some countries that have, you know, signed the proliferation agreements that the United States has created to join the nations of, of uh, countries that are allowed to have bombs, mm-hmm. like France, or you know, for example. And then there's right. some countries that have not, like Israel, you know, that do have bombs and everyone knows that they have atomic bombs. Right. um so I don't know I mean the Israelis got it through es- espionage like they got it from um espionage in the United States there's other countries that you know got get the technology from um just like trade and things like that I'm not yeah, but sure I'm, I was just curious process. like
0: because you know the 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 Soviets end up building you know their own nuclear bombs and that's like you know this was our deterrent and to be the scary you know country that dictates you know the world at this point but they end up getting their hands on it too. I don't exactly remember the exact time frame, um, but they get their hands on it. Not only do they get their hands on it, but their proliferation goes farther and faster than ours does, uh, to the point where they get to, you know, making the fucking Tsar Bomba, which is like the largest explosion ever, you know, man-made explosion ever done, you know, um, and at, the, at that point, you know, both countries had enough stockpiles to destroy the entire planet many times over, and and it becomes kind of a moot point. But yeah, you know, if, if we're talking about the politics of of the bomb itself and how it, you know, how it dictates geopolitics, the one blind spot that I have that I I'm kind of curious to look up uh, at this point is just how did they end up getting it? You know, like what were the conditions by which they were able to to secure the scary
1: weapon. I think it was just the pressures of not having it. Um, I'm not sure if they're, I'm not sure the exact, like the exact history of how they developed it, but I think Mm -hmm. the, what, what hate um, made them build it so fast was just the pressures of not having it and wanting it. Um, But I, I guess the overall attitude was, you know, screw the Soviets, you know, we're all the world power. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are, we're the country, like we have three times the, the, uh, gross national product as they do. Um, you know, we're just a way more powerful country. Um, right. but so w- one of the major concessions and, and the conditions that were, that they were talking about was, uh, was a Polish question.
0: Yeah. I was, I was just going to ask you about that actually. So what's the deal with Poland? Um, cause, cause they're. You know, I read that there were kind of a big point of contention for all of this, and and I imagine that that what happens in Poland matters a great deal for the Soviet Union at the very least. So it's kind of like a bargaining chip, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Poland doesn't exist before World War One as a nation. You know, or they're Polish land, right? Polish but, land. There's Polish people. There's not Poland, the country. Um, historically, those were parts of the Russian Empire and and um, the German Empire and um you know both states, maybe even the sold, Akkadian Empire <laughs> yeah both both states saw Poland as you know valuable real estate mm-hmm. to protect themselves from, from invasion it was just land that was needed so they're kind of set up Poland as a state that is created is kind of just like a British puppet government after after World War One, and they're really put in a terrible position like they really are just put in between the the two most vicious states in european history and if you like look at poland as a map like there's not really any mountains to protect it it's just plains you can just walk right in there so really had no chance to uh, survive world war 2 like of course they were going to be eaten up alive by by both of these states um but um uh, The agreement in Yalta was that there was supposed to be this unity government in Poland. However, the Soviet Union had maneuvered a communist government into power. And, you know, they were going to sign the the Soviet-Polish treaty. And um, I have this quote. I'm going to pull up Mike Swanson's book again. Harry Truman's advisors saw this as a dangerous sign. Avril Harriman, America's ambassador to the Soviet Union, rushed to the White House to tell Truman that, in his view, Stalin wanted to keep cooperating with the United States and Britain, while at the same time creating his own sphere of domination in Eastern Europe. He advised Truman to stand tough against the Russians. The next day, the president met with Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov and warned him that he expected Stalin to honor all of the Yalta agreements and allow the Eastern European nations to have democratic governments. If the Russians didn't let more men into the, the Polish government, he would consider Yalta done with. He said he wanted friendship with Stalin, but it couldn't be a, a one-way street. Molotov sat there stunned and said, I have never been talked to that, to talk to like that in my life. Hmm. And uh, it goes on. Carry out your agreements and you won't get talked to like that, Truman replied. Molotov stormed out of the room. Truman bragged to his advisors that I gave it to him straight. One, two to the jaw. I gave it to him straight. Sure. One turn to the jaw. It sounds like he was trying to impress his advisors. Like, I'm president, and I need something to prove. So I'm going to go talk to this Russian foreign minister and say, I'm the president of the United States, motherfucker. What are you going to say back? Right. Um, I got the bomb. But Stalin, yeah, Stalin does send the message back. It is, um, And his message is, It is also necessary to take into account the fact that Poland borders on the Soviet Union, which cannot be said of Great Britain and the United States. The question of Poland has the same meaning for the security of the Soviet Union as the question of Belgium and Greece for the security of Great Britain.
0: So it has the same meaning for the security of the Soviet Union as the question of Belgium and Greece for the security of Great Britain. Belgium and Greece don't border Great Britain,
1: well, Belgium is very close to Great Britain. You can yeah, launch close. A,
0: Greece is pretty fucking far, so I don't but like that.
1: The, we're talking about the British Empire.
0: Yeah, I guess.
1: So, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, there's a place called Egypt. It's very important to the British. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And there's about there's that. so there are Middle Eastern assets there. So they you know the British foreign policy has always been about protecting their favorite colonies
0: right so like so the,
1: their afghan wars were all about protecting and Indi- the, the afghan wars they got into in, in the 1800s were all about protecting india from russia which is right. kind of funny it's you know there's seems like there's been a 150 year long cold war between britain and russia that just never never ended
0: yeah no uh, that that does make sense so, so what what you've described, and, and you know, reading the the quotes from the book, it sounds like, you know, FDR dies, things start going downhill from there, and then Truman starts dick swinging a little bit and trying to, you know, put the put the hammer down, so to speak, and, and I guess the ultimate hammer is is you know, nukes, and uh, you know the Russians at this point are as you're saying are are negotiating with you know the Western allies to on what to do about Poland. And they had also agreed to, to help out on the, uh, Japanese war front. So, um, is, is the breakdown of those negotiations is that, is that why we end up speeding up the timeline on, on nuking Japan, or at least that pulling the trigger at all?
1: So I, that's an interesting question. Cause I don't think anyone's ever really, I don't think there's a historian that's, there's arguments between historians on this and why the U.S. decided to do this, and I'm certainly not qualified to give an answer. Um, but I do know that during the, the Postum conference, which were like the conferences after the, the war in Europe mm-hmm. where they were discussing, uh, were further discussing the reparations and, and Eastern Europe, and um, one of the other big conversations was the war in Japan and what they were going to do afterwards. And one of the big goals of FDR um, and it became Truman's goal uh, as well when he became president, because he did continue a lot of the policies that FDR wanted, was to get Russia, to get the Soviet Union into the war and have them invade Manchuria um, and, um, you know, eventually the upper half of Hokkaido, um, you know, the northern island, um, you you obviously know the geography of Japan, like the Northern right. Hokkaido Island, but That's right. there were arguments on that as well, because I, you know, I don't think the U S wanted them to take the full Island. They just wanted to take half of it. That's a whole different story, but they wanted them to help them with the war to, to get, to get that over. Well, um, during the conference, Truman, he receives a report that the atomic bomb had been successful. The tests have been successful the Trinity bomb. And not only was it successful, but the explosion had been bigger than expected.
0: Right. It was
1: huge. So, uh, Truman, he's recorded. I mean, everyone keeps diaries back in the day. I don't think anyone keeps diaries. You know, if we ever going to do a historical take on, um, on someone else, you just read their emails and read their, read their um, tweets and their TikToks, and tweets and TikToks and whatever. <laughs> YouTube's, yeah. um, But I guess back then you'd have to keep a diary to keep things on the record, right? I can never imagine. I can never imagine having a diary. Um,
0: it's gonna be it's gonna be super weird when you know books are written about important historical figures. Like, like example, do you really think Donald Trump kept any kept keeps a diary? Like, they're gonna have to like go on just straight I up. Talk his to
1: tweets. you real loser today. What you a know? loser. He was a slab. He was a <laughs> slab. Okay.
0: <laughs> you know, like they're going to straight up have to like go to his tweets as a primary source for and I'm talking about like in 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 like 100 years, like well after. loser. Okay. Well after he's dead,
1: you know. <laughs> God. That's it's going to be weird, dude. It's going to be weird it's yeah there's gonna it's gonna be weird it's gonna be weird to have um a lot of a lot of people from our generation it's gonna be weird to see their autobiography or not their autobiography their biographies biographies. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah because i don't think our generation really like writes journals like everything is kind of online already what they write that will be used unless they get access from like uh i don't know how the privacy would work if the family could release access to their emails or whatever. I guess I don't, I don't know how that would actually work at all. Yeah. Um, like what
0: happens to your email when you die? You know?
1: Uh, yeah. What does, what, what does? does it go to heaven with you? Or does it go <laughs> to hell? Depending on what's in the email. That's how they judge you goes to heaven and hell. They look at your emails. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know
0: Did where are going. to you overthrow any then. countries?
1: <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay, you know where Hillary's gone. going based on that then? <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. So in his diary, he writes, Japs will fold up before Russia comes in. I am sure they will when Manhattan appears over their homeland. Hmm. Hmm. What a kind of vindictive uh, asshole. So the shift is in the policy. Burns and Truman, they no longer wanted Russia in the war against Japan. Mm Mm-hmm. When they issue a declaration of unconditional surrender to Japan, they leave the Soviet Union out as signatories, so they only include England and China. China, China, not the P, not the communist China, Mao China. They include the King Chai, the Kuomintang. Um, but the last pasta meeting. Um, he Truman actually even admits to Stalin that he that he says, hey, man, we do have a weapon and this weapon is going to knock your socks off. Like you're not going to believe this shit when you see this, when you see this nuke, when you see this bomb. He didn't say it was a nuke. He just said we have a weapon that is going to be unusual. You're not going to you're not going to see anything unusual like this, destructive force.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And Stalin just apparent. legendly he just says he's like, OK, yeah, sure. Whatever. Doesn't really signal it. He's like, okay, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, pre-bomb pre
0: times, pre-bomb times. That's kind of like, like everyone thinks that, like, it's like, yeah, okay, sure, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> like, like what could you possibly do? And like, nobody. Like, the atomic bomb is literally a like leaps and bounds beyond. You know, I mean, it functions like like other bombs, but in terms of the scale of the the destructive force it it like leapfrogs many orders of magnitude over anything that was ever developed up to that point you know so of course nobody would have believed it they would have just like yeah sure whatever it'd be like someone someone's saying that now it's like oh you've got something stronger than a nuclear bomb yeah okay you know
1: yeah you probably thought it was a bluff right and um, you know, what's that website where you can see
0: Oh yeah, we did like that nuclear, the nuclear, map, map.
1: Yeah, nuclear nuclear map. A nuclear map mm-hmm. where you can pick bombs out and then you can just you can bomb different parts of the world. Yeah, you, can, you can pick wherever part of your map
0: and different conditions. Yeah. We did we did an episode with video where uh I was like fucking around on the iPad. That was uh Do you live near a nuclear sponge?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. That is pretty fun, and then it shows you the blast radius, and it also shows the, um, I guess the zone where everyone's vaporized. Yeah, you know, obviously where enough, everyone's
0: gonna die from cancer.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because you everyone bombs their home city. You know, that's right. the first thing that I you bomb where you live. Of course. That's a natural. You want to know
0: how, how how like how
1: fucked are you? <laughs> like, if a bomb lands within 2 miles of where i live i'm not, i'm mo- you're gonna die. i'm mostly you're going to die you're but i think we would survive <laughs> both of us would survive an a bomb and um let's just say if one was dropped in um uh, at like penn station or, or yeah yeah we would survive penn.
0: but we we might end up having well first of all we we'd have a hard time getting out we'd have a hard time leaving and second of all we we might end
1: up with cancer like very quickly so yeah, we would we would survive the blast radius. Mm-hmm. But we would get sick from the radiation and all that. Right. I think by, and
0: and and probably not be able to leave.
1: Yeah. Well, it the, the stories of the a bomb are horrifying. Mhm. The stories from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like they're right. really like really
0: shadows fun. on the wall getting like permanently.
1: Well, I like, don't find those I don't find those stories that I mean, those are obviously terrible, but the things I find more horrifying are like the ones where people lived and mm. were just Maimed. their whole body was just burnt to a crisp and they were mm-hmm. just in extreme amounts of pain. Those are the most horrifying stories. And, like the right. doctor accounts of like working with people, like, oh man, it's, it's very, it's, a, it's a tragedy that those cities were destroyed like that and um mm-hmm. you know so but let's pull this back when they dropped the bomb on hiroshima the that is the 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 origin of the cold war like that is the day one of the cold war in my opinion because that is the day that the soviet union lost its status as a superpower and it kind of put them on it kind of um cascaded into this massive arms race of tensions Mm -hmm. What, what moscow called it they called it atomic blackmail but um stalin didn't give in so what the soviets did is that they responded by moving their invasion up by two weeks And what Truman did is that he bombed Nagasaki. So it's like, I mean, come on. If you buy into the claim that dropping the atomic bomb on Japan ended the war early or saved more lives than they killed, after vaporizing Hiroshima, they could have at least waited a few weeks before nuking another city, right? Right. They didn't
0: need to do it right, like sequentially like that. Yeah.
1: They could have let that settle in saying, hey, listen. Do you see how horrible this was? We can do it again. And just give it a couple of weeks to settle in. Like, all right. Right. Cool. Let's uh, let's see how. I mean,
0: there is an argument to be made about like, I don't know, maybe they bolster their air defenses or something like that to make it harder for us to do it a second time if we waited too long. But I, I think you're absolutely right. Just the, the the one would have been enough. And I remember, I think we talked about this on the show, but there were some some um, proposals to to just drop one off the coast of tokyo you know what i mean like not on the city but like right next to it right in the water and just be like look what we can do the next one hits tokyo you know um and that might have been enough to scare them into submission
1: but well in the world of revisionist history there's a theory that this, the Japanese didn't surrender because of the nuclear bombs they or the atomic bombs they surrendered because the Soviet Union joined the war effort and they wanted to surrender to America and not the Soviet Union and that was the major primary reason why they surrendered. It didn't have anything to do with the bombs.
0: Well I mean I, I think the truth lies somewhere in between probably.
1: Yeah, obviously the truth it's it's hard. you know I do know that you know Tojo was was overthrown prior to the war so Mm -hmm. the the Japanese were trying to get a new government in place and one of the 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 new government in place in Japan was going to try to end the war so there's a lot of uh analysis to be done there um but I guess the pull the pull this back what this does is that it pressures the Soviet Union to get the bomb as quickly as possible at Evernorth health services
0: And, and I mean, I brought this up kind of earlier, but, you know, wh- why do you think or f- from what you've read, you know, in, in this book, like, why do you think it was so important to have leverage over this, you know, to have this kind of leverage over the Soviet Union?
1: So, all right, I'll pull up another uh, passage from this Mike Swanson book. The Soviets had, the Soviet Union had lost millions of soldiers in the war against Germany and most of its industry had been destroyed. British Commander Bernard Montgomery visited the Soviet Union and found Russians to be very, very tired. Devastation in Russia is appalling, and the country is in no fit to start a war. U.S. Army intelligence figured that it would take the Russians 15 years to overcome these manpower losses, 5 to 10 years to build a viable air force that could compete with the United States, another 15 to 25 years to build a navy, and 10 years to rebuild its railway networks. It would be suicidal insanity for the Soviet Union to try to attack the United States or Western Europe in this condition, and especially when it didn't have an atomic bomb against an enemy that not only showed that it had the bomb, but also that it wouldn't hesitate to use it if it was necessary. And no one thought Stalin was crazy.
0: Well, if, if the Soviets were in no condition to go to war, why were, we, why were we so worried about it? Why was the US so worried about it?
1: Well, so, all right, this was the greatest war in human history, World War II, and um, Europe had effectively been destroyed. So, in the words of Truman's advisor, John McCloy, you know, there was a complete economic um, social breakdown in Central Europe that was unparalleled in history. Um... His um, his um, undersecretary of state Dean Atchison, he reported that the destruction is more complete, hunger more acute, exhaustion more widespread than anyone realized. So, um, I to put this into context: the average German was down to a thousand calories a day. There was massive Jeez. inflation all all across Europe. Um, what this caused was people to join the communist parties.
0: Mm, I see. So it was less about Stalin or, you know, less about the Soviet Union per se and more about just desperate people flocking to go to whatever, you know, whoever is going to tell them they're going to make it better.
1: Yeah, it was all about, you know, whatever political party they can get the most relief from. Um, But voters, votes for the Communist Party in Greece went from 17,000 in 1935 to 70,000 after the war um this was all across europe so the truman administration thought if these nations went communist they would align themselves with the soviet union so over the next few years the u.s engaged in a policy of rebuilding europe through economic aid and um you know they also tried to block the soviet union from expanding this belief led to the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan, you know, in Truman's words, um, you know, a chaotic and hungry Europe is not a fertile ground in which stable, democratic and friendly governments can be reared. Uh-oh. So Uh-oh.
0: nation building.
1: <laughs> well, it's not nation as much nation building as in pumping money up building. So the United States starts. To What's pump- the difference? <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, I guess what is a good point. So. The U.S. starts to pump a lot of money into Europe, um, starting with Greece and Turkey. They give um, like $300 million in aid for Greece, uh, $100 million in ter- for Turkey. I'm not even exactly sure why they gave the money to Turkey, but um, the reason why for they countries. gave so much money to Greece was because Greece was in the middle of a civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the belief in the security state, national security state, was that if Greece turned communist, it would cascade into all of Europe turning communist. So, I mean, after the, after, sorry,
0: looking at a more recent example, uh, you know, Greece had a really bad go of it, you know, during the, the economic crisis in 2008. And everyone was saying like, oh, if Greece, if Greece goes belly under, then the entire Europe goes belly under. Right. And didn't seem to turn out that way. So, seems like Greece is always pulling everyone down or at least making everyone make tough decisions uh, to pump more money into the area. Fucking Greece.
1: Greece is failing. Bail us out, please. That means it's going to happen to all of us. Right. We need the Marshall Plan. We need the Marshall Plan. But yeah, I mean, there had been like... A, I mean, I'm not an expert on Greek history at all, but from what I've read there had been like a very long conflict in Greece between the right and the left wing there. And Mm. um, it wasn't necessarily even a product of like the Soviet union or anything like that. Like that was just already in place, but the U S saw that as like kind of a launching point or a uh, ground zero for the communist spread all across Europe. Mm. Um, But the Marshall plan that we all know in 1948 which was 13 billion dollars in aid i think originally it was proposed to be 17 billion 13 billion dollars in aid in 1945 that's a lot uh, of money today adjusted for inflation is a lot of money you know it created this, this really big economic commitment to europe from the united states and then nato was created To integrate western europe into a defensive alliance and what this does is that it creates a security dilemma which is when a security dilemma is when the defensive measures of one nation causes another nation to embark on their own defensive measures so um tit for tat kind of you know tit for tat type of thing exactly the Soviets saw this money being pumped into Western Europe as a threat to them because it meant that, well, one of the big threats was that it meant the potential revival of Germany. And it also meant the possibility that Eastern European states could break away and join Western Europe. So uh, when you know economic aid was offered to countries of Eastern Europe, they were forced to reject it by the Soviet Union. Um, doesn't this sound kind of familiar to you doesn't this sound very parallel to modern to oh, yeah. modern um tensions with Russia yeah I mean specifically Ukraine you know doesn't that like, uh... ring very parallel between um you know the 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 um you Ukraine not taking money not taking money from um the West and taking money from you know choosing Russia to be their bailout partner. That's right, yeah, and not the EU. I mean, it makes sense because
0: you know before it used to be Poland, right? Poland was the 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 kind of midland between you know the two rival, very aggressive you know powers, and and that line has since shifted eastward, and now you know countries like Ukraine are on that precipice so yeah they they have hard decisions to make
1: yeah um so in 1948 this was a very important year in the cold war there also i just want to mention as well that the resistance to this or some of the resistance to this was among the old right so the old right were like the old, uh, the old. There was two wings of the Republican Party, in like the in the early 20th century. There was uh, the internationalist kind of Rockefeller-type crowds who kind of put their money behind Eisenhower, and then there was the old right um, guys like Robert Taft, and th- these were the or Charles Lindbergh was uh, was part of the old right. And they were kind they were the main opposition to this. So um, you know, they were saying that the Truman administration was full of shit and that they were fear-mongering. To deal with this resistance though, the Truman administration started painting the Soviets as a country bent on world domination. Okay, now so, also um, sounds <laughs> that
0: also sounds very familiar to you. <laughs> Just ratchet up the the fear. About um about other superpowers, other world powers.
1: Well, all right. So there's there's a um, coup that takes place in Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic. Czechia. Czechia. There's a coup that takes place in uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, Um, and in February 1948, the Communist Party there takes full control of the government. And this was one of the reasons that the Truman administration said that we needed to do a Marshall plan. And I have a quote, uh, I have another quote from one of my uh, favorite historians, Ralph Rako. And I quote this guy all the time. just, because I love his writing so much. He writes a lot about world war one too. um, So I, I use him quite often. Um, But I'm going to read from him right now. Czechoslovakia, for all intents and purposes, was already a Soviet satellite. Having led the Czechs in the ethnic cleansing of 3.5 million Sudeten Germans, the communists enjoyed great popularity. In the general elections, they won 38% of the vote, constituting by far the largest single party. The American ambassador reported to Washington that the communist consolidation of power in early 1948 was a logical outgrowth of the Czech-Soviet military alliance dating back to 1943. George Marshall himself in private stated that as far as the international VARs are concerned, the formal communist assumption of power made no difference. It would merely crystallize to confirm for the future previous Czech policy. Still, the communist coup was painted as a great leap forward in Stalin's plan for world conquest. Now, I have another quote from Air Force General Robert C. Richardson, who served at NATO headquarters in the early 1950s. And uh, he had admitted there was no question about it that the Soviet threat that we were planning against was way overrated and internationally overrated, intentionally overrated, because there was the problem of reorienting the U.S. mobilization made this nine-foot-tall threat out of it there. And for years and years, it stuck. I mean, it was almost immovable. Hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of other quotes like that as well. And it's funny because what a lot of the people who were, who kind of recognized this or spoke out against it, they were called, uh, wait for it, Kremlin assets. Hmm. Does that sound familiar?
0: Yeah, Russian assets, Chinese assets, Kremlin asset,
1: it? Kremlin asset. Mm-hmm. Tulsi Gabbard, uh Hillary Clinton called. Um, I think her direct word because she called her uh, a Kremlin oh. asset. Maybe it was a Russian asset, but I think Russian Kremlin Russian, asset. It, so it's just the funny same the thing. same language was yeah. being used ex- back in. You know, we think everything is new, but you just look, you read a couple of books, and you're like, oh, this already happened.
0: Yeah, I mean history doesn't repeat again. itself but it does rhyme for sure. Yeah.
1: But I don't know, you just really see look, well, wow, there's really great parallels between now and then. Um but all right, let's let's kind of let's wrap this up and get to kind of the final point of this. So on um, August 29th, 1949, the Soviets get the A bomb. In response, to not just the Soviets getting the aid bomb, but also the communist victory in um, in the Chinese Civil War. Well, they didn't win yet, but they were about to win. Like the writing was on the table that um, the Kuomintang was about to flee to Taiwan. And um, also, the U.S. had its own recession at this time. Um, the U.S. sought to draft a basic strategy guide for the Cold War. And the result was the National Security Council Report 68, um, also called the NSC-68, signed by Truman on September 30th, 1950, and supervised by Paul Nitz. And it stated, A defeat of free institutions anywhere is a defeat everywhere. The United States should no longer attempt to distinguish between national, and global security. Instead, it must stand at the political material center with other free nations in variable orbits around it. That's, public, that's op- very. That's very like um,
0: egotistical. Uh, <laughs> it's a very self-centered position to have.
1: Um, it goes on. So public opinion was to be conditioned to accept the the large measure of sacrifice and discipline. It is also laid out the it, Well, right now I'm reading from Ralph Rico. Uh, it also laid out the basic public e- economic policies that the U S uh, pursues to this day. One of the most significant lessons of world war two experience was that the American economy, when it operates at the level of approaching full efficiency can provide enormous resource resources for purposes other than civilian consumption while simultaneously providing a high standard of living. So, what this does, so what the, What uh, this document calls for, the uh, National Security Council Report 68, the NSC 68, if you want to look it up, just type in NSC-68, you're going to find more information that way. Um, it calls for the tripling of defense expenditures, effectively building a, a garrison state. To justify the increase in defense spending that the group wanted they had to portray the Soviet Union as a growing and dangerous threat. And um, the NSC-68, it claimed that uh, the Soviets were spending so much money on defense that by the year 1954, that, well, they labeled that the year of maximum danger in which the Russians would be able to launch a total atomic attack against the U.S. and overrun Europe. Um, unless Truman authorized a rapid defense bill to counter them in their um, you know, their purpose or their uh, co- their their quest for world domination. Um, now allegedly and, and what from what I've read about this is that Truman, when he was handed this and, and Truman was, I think a lot of presidents are not necessarily like super, malignant people i think he kind of was like oh man this is nuts <laughs> uh i don't know we can't triple our defense spending because back in the day i mean there used to be like some kind of tradition of fiscal responsibility like no one wanted to if you told any president That we had close to a trillion, a $30 trillion. We were in $30 trillion of debt. They would shit. Like any past president, if you spoke to. Like if you spoke to FDR, the most big government president ever, and you said, hey, we're in a $30 trillion deficit, he'd be like, what? What did you do? (laughs) What happened? Well, it started with. Yeah. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> it's um, your fault
0: actually. Um
1: thirty trillion they would
0: Well to your talk. earlier point, yeah, you're you're right because because you know that, that doesn't sound like a very attractive um, you know idea at this time because as you pointed out really in the beginning of the show, the you know the expenditures of the United States on on war would only like spike in wartime and then would quickly subside thereafter where other countries would then dwarf our military spending because we would just basically send everybody home, right? We were like, okay, war's over, go home, right? We're done with this. And we wouldn't keep large stockpiles of everything. And, and the, you know, the, the idea wasn't to, to keep this, it was more Washingtonian, you know, like not having a, a crazy large, you know standing army it was just like when when we need it we'll have it and when we don't we won't you know uh so so you're saying that this nsc 68 you know starts ratcheting up all this you know uh russia phobia all the soviet you know fear and they're saying that oh by 1954 you know it's gonna be we're gonna have maximum danger and we have to you know build up our shit three times what it is now even though the war is over you know uh that, yeah, I could see how that would be a kind of tough pill to swallow and it's it's pretty interesting that that's the it seems to be the, the, the route we went down but um, I think you were saying that 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 Truman had a couple of options here, right?
1: Yeah, so the way that they do this in a national security state is that they give presidents multiple options and then they'll mm-hmm. say, all right, well here's we have three options and then two of the options will be ridiculous. Like we right. can't good, bad, them. and ugly, you know. Like just they're they're not conceivable. So the the uh, options that they give him are to the first one is like, can we? All right, we can just simply withdraw from the world and leave Europe and Japan on their own devices. So we just let them be and leave, and you know we'll just go back and we'll completely withdraw. The second option, which was going to be no, like obviously Truman was going to go for that. The second option was, all right. Well, the other option is that we can just uh, do a full-scale atomic war on the Soviet Union, right away. <laughs> we <can> just, <laughs> nuke them right now. We nuke <laughs> them right now, and then and then Truman's like, wait, well, I don't want to do that. Like, like, come on. Like, there's got to be another way. And, and then they were like, well, you know, there is another way, but you've got to be a really good president to pull this one off. We need a real good leader. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, the third option is that we could just triple defense spending, and you know that will give us the strategic edge to close all the gaps between the Soviet dominance and military technology. And you're like, all right, that's a, that you're telling me that's the only thing. Like that's how things are done. Like I think that's how they talk to the presidents. Mm, I don't sneaky think sneaky hobbits
0: is. Yeah, <laughs> they
1: they kind of fool them into. To, uh, doing these policies, and you know this bill, and, and I'm just going to read one more, uh, a couple more quotes from this, and we'll wrap this up because I, I think these are important points. Um, so this is from a historian Ernest May, and he writes this in the book uh, World War II and the Cold War. Uh, Once the president studied the document and discovered how carefully uh, Atchison and Nitz had built their base of support. However, he probably recognized that he was trapped. Hardly had he told reporters that he had hoped to continue to cut defense spending. than he began to see arguments directly out of the, NC, the NSC 68 appearing in the press. Um, so what he's essentially saying is that um, the bureaucracy had already been behind this document. So, key figures in the administration and within the national security state had also had already supported the NSC 68, and Truman effectively, if he went against it, he would have gone at war with his own administration and the own uh, in the national security state. So hmm. he was kind of forced to um, to do to to do that to uh, go along with it, and within a couple of months of him signing it. Guess what happens? What? North Korea invades South Korea.
0: Ah, uh, yeah.
1: But Jing.
0: And then the Koreans.
1: Could Jing. And something it's something interesting, like to give some context on you know these hysterical um arguments about like gaps in technology. Kennedy ran on that so one of the complaints on eisenhower is that there was a there was a big missile gap so there was a big fear that oh there's gonna like under the eisenhower administration there there became this big missile gap between the united states and the soviet union and kennedy campaigned on that he was like Hmm. i'm going to uh you know make sure that our missile gap is not and we'll get back and um Allegedly, or apparently, like there's this great story about when Kennedy, you know, he's going through his meetings with Eisenhower when there's that transition from presidency. Um, Eisenhower is like, "Let's let you know something. There is no missile gap." And then he starts like, "I'm going to tell you the real deal." And and Eisenhower kind of tells him the real deal about like, "This is how we do it. How we, uh, how we, uh, you know, navigate the Cold War and." Eisenhower is like showing him like all the cool shit you can do as president like watch this and like a helicopter just comes out of nowhere and picks him up that's cool (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, but it is uh, but there was no missile gap between the the US and the Soviet Union the United States always had the edge in that type of technology Um, they weren't able to that makes me
0: wonder about it makes me wonder about the shit that we hear about now about how much of a gap there is I mean there is a missile gap now um, kind of, I mean, we, we certainly have fewer, uh, missiles than, uh, uh, than the Soviet Union, excuse me, Russia, Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Um, we have fewer than, than Russia, but, you know, like I said before, the number of nukes really doesn't matter when, you know, just a handful of them are enough to blow up the whole world. But as far as like, you know, ballistic missiles go like those medium range missiles that we do have kind of a a missile gap with china right now and you know the the military right now is is i've been reading a lot of stuff about the push for um kind of redeveloping those medium range missiles that used to be off the table because everyone agreed not to make them um but china's decided china never signed on to it and they've been making them and you know got us all worried you know and we're all talking about making hypersonic cruise missiles and shit you know sounds like again history doesn't repeat itself but it certainly does rhyme i wonder if we already have more than enough uh, of the technology but you know people are just making the rounds in the media to to ratchet up that fear so that we can you know swallow that pill of military expenditure a little bit easier it's the spoonful of sugar so to speak
1: yeah and i before we wrap this up, and I just want to be clear on the point I'm making, because I know I know I'm going to get a lot of shit for this episode. This is one of those story. This is one of those episodes. where just we're bound to get shit. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to make the point that the Soviet Union was a good state, or or it wasn't as bad or as evil as people say it was, as far as mm-hmm. how they treated people and the secret police and all that. Um, the point I'm, I'm trying to make is that. I don't think the Soviet Union was ever a threat to the United States, and that the a lot of the Cold War was um, manufactured by our own military-industrial complex to continue getting these really sweet contracts.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, that's uh,
0: that. That, that follow the money.
1: Yep. I can't do. I can't do a Jesse Ventura uh, impression. It's not that good. Follows of money. Maybe if I work on it, I can get it. Eventually. Um, (laughs) Eventually. All right. Um, I know you have a headache, so let's wrap this one up. Yep. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bro History. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed listening to it. As always, we're always just trying to introduce you guys to new topics and things like that. Obviously, further reading um, is, is always necessary. We're not the authorities. We're just guys who like to talk about this stuff. But if you like and enjoy the show, make sure you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support the show is rating and reviewing the podcast. So just go ahead to that five star on Apple and rate the podcast. It's a great way to help us grow. And then there's Patreon. Go to our Patreon to support us. We, uh, you'll have access to our Slack account. Our Slack account is a great way to uh, talk to us. We have a really fun community there where we talk um, pretty much every day. People are posting there, honestly, almost by the hour at this point. Like, right. it's a really fun community. So, yeah, Sharing support articles, us on Patreon to get that. <laughs> yeah, um, yes, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a great community. Um, so, we hope to see you there. Uh, anything else? No, oh, man. All right, peace, guys. See you next week. Thanks.